Well, as you heard the sermon text just read, we are in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And as you're turning there in your copy of God's Word, as I was looking at this text, I was realizing that the topic of identity is a huge topic in today's culture. Everybody wants to know the answers to the big questions, who we are, how and why we are here, and importantly, where we're going. But sadly, the world's answer to those questions is given through the lens of relativism, the exchanging of a central reality that serves as the guide for all truth in exchange for realities that are created by us, that we walk in by our own strength and through our own imaginations. For example, recently I googled just very plainly in the search bar, how do I find my identity? If you want to know what the world says about a topic, just Google it. And so I Googled, what is my identity? How do I find it? And it was fascinating. The promoted answer right at the top of the page gave some exhortations that sounded like this. They said, list your strengths and weaknesses. Identify your core values. Find your beliefs. Accept who you are. And my personal favorite, if all of that fails, take a personality test. And as I read the advice under each of those headings and more like them, I I found the common theme, and you probably heard it in that pronoun used over and over again, your, your, your. The theme that undergirded all of the world's wisdom was looking to yourself. Isn't being true to yourself the mantra of every Disney movie? I remember watching the movie Mulan a long time ago, and it's literally the name of one of the songs in that movie, Be True to Your Heart. That's what the world is trying to feed us. And as we hear this, I think we as Christians rightly recoil at this notion because we do know that true joy and true fulfillment and true meaning is not found in ourselves. True meaning and true joy is found in Christ. But this concept of identity is under attack, and it's under attack both in our culture and in our lives because the enemy knows Satan knows that the answer to this question of identity, who we are, why we're here, where we're going, that that's the fount, really, of everything in our lives, isn't it? Those questions and their answers are the frame on which the vine of our affections grow. They're the lens through which we interpret our reality, and they're ultimately those answers where, if we're honest, we find our hope. And so it makes sense then that for unbelievers, Satan's constantly trying to convince them that the identity of their own making is what will bring them true satisfaction, that it will bring them the hope that they desperately long for and the peace that they're longing for. But we know that that's not true. That lie only leads to death. But as Christians... We may think that once we have our identity firmly rooted in Christ, that that would be the end of Satan's attacks. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it's not. In many ways, that's really where they just begin. His attacks don't stop once we come to faith. Because even after we come to faith, as Peter says later on in this letter, he still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Yes, it's true that the gospel gives us a new identity and a richer, more full 
meaning to life, but Satan's primary goal once we come to faith is to keep us from faithfulness in walking in that new identity. And he does this through relentless attack. What do we, how do we see this? What do I mean by that? Well, for example, he's constantly trying at every turn to get us to question our standing in Christ with lies and accusations of our sin. He relentlessly tempts us to sin, counterfeit pleasures that sap our joy in Christ because he knows that when we fall into sin, it renders our faith weak and makes us impotent to display his glory in the world. He knows that the threat of persecution, of attack from the government or even people around us will cause us to question whether identifying with Jesus is really even worth it at all. And he knows that the allure of the world and all of its comforts and its fortunes dilutes our resolve to suffer and to sacrifice for Christ's glory in the world. And brothers and sisters, I'll be honest, that's why I was led to this passage this morning because as you heard Wes mention earlier, we're in the midst of a church planting initiative and a growth in trying to be faithful in the external journey of gospel advance. But lest we get too confident in our own strength, let's pause and consider, do you think Satan likes that our church is trying to do this? Do you think Satan is just going to let us stand and go through this path uh, and he's just going to kind of wash his hands and say, well, I'm, they're doing that and so I'm not going to bother them. No, in many ways, the theme of spiritual attack has been very much on my mind because honestly, if we're going to be faithful in this, It doesn't exclude us from the attacks of the evil one. It actually puts a target on our backs. I was humbled at the May members meeting whenever we announced the church planting initiative and gave two critical components to it. Firstly, that we're hoping to see a church planted in the Raleigh, uh, the uh, Research Triangle Park region of the Raleigh-Durham area. And I was humbled and still am humbled to have received the churches and the elders' confirmation to lead that church planting effort. But over and over again, I've just been meditating on this reality that if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we need to be strengthened in our faith. We need to be strengthened to be able to withstand the attacks from the enemy against our identity in him if we're going to display his glory in all the ways that he hopes and has for us. And that's why I was led to this passage, because in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is writing to elect exiles not unlike us. He's writing to people that were saved by Christ, but they were still left in a hostile world. They too were being tempted with persecution. They too were being tempted with falling back into unholy patterns of sin. They too were being tempted to be conformed into the image of the world instead of being conformed into the image of our Savior. And to strengthen his readers, you may think Peter gives them a list of things to do, or you may think that he cause, uh, you know, tells them to look within for just more strength, to just kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but he doesn't do that. What's so powerful is in the midst of the reality of the attacks against our identity that Satan levies against his church, Peter doesn't give them a new novel strategy he doesn't encourage them to look within. Instead, he causes their eyes to be elevated, to be fixed on Christ. Peter knows this reality all too well. You remember when Jesus called him to walk on the water? Peter was walking firmly on top of the water when his eyes were fixed on Christ. 
But the moment that Peter's eyes started to look at the wind and the waves, he doubted, and that's when he began to sink. Peter knows that strength for the journey of walking in that identity that Jesus has given us is not found by looking within, and it's certainly not found by looking without. It's found by looking to our Savior. So he reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of the beauty of what Christ has done, and he reminds them that the key to facing the enemy's attacks against who we are in Christ is remembering whose we are in him. He reminds them that the strength for faithfulness in the Christian life is found in being reminded over and over again of what is true. And that truth is that we've been given a God-given identity And from that identity flows a God-glorifying purpose. And our God-glorifying purpose is displayed through our God-focused calling in this life. And so as we dive into 1 Peter 2, 9, let's take a look at what our God-given identity is. What is true about our identity that Peter says that can strengthen us for progress and faithfulness to Christ? In 1 Peter 2, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, it's fascinating. You you may have seen it here, but it's certainly true of, of much of what Peter writes in 1 Peter. Peter uses a lot of Old Testament imagery and allusions, and he takes those things and powerfully applies them to the church of Jesus Christ. And so by way of context, it's important for us to understand what is the theological truth, what is the thread that Peter's trying to weave as he's bringing these images to bear. Because it's in understanding those truths that I think the thrust and the strength of these identity statements that follow are given. So for example, you see back in chapter 2, verse 4, and Peter uses this analogy of a living stone to refer to Jesus Christ. He then calls us the living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. What is he he getting at there? Well, you may remember that the temple in the Old Covenant was the center of God's purpose for the Israelites. It was the manifestation of God's presence with his people. It's fascinating. I was recently in 1 Kings 6, through eight, where Solomon was building, and then he uh, prays a dedication for the temple. And his prayers all throughout those chapters are filled with just exhortations to the people to walk in holiness and faithfulness before God. And it's also uh, petitions are given over and over again to God that he would, through obedience to the covenant, be pleased to make his presence known with his people, that they would experience the river of blessing that comes from being the people of God. And so it's the center of Jewish life and worship. And yet... I think even then they saw as well that it was an imperfect picture of what it meant for God to perfectly dwell with his people. I was talking to Andy and Andy about this theme earlier this week, and we were meditating on the reality that at the temple, it was just separation after separation after separation. The Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelled, was separated by a thick curtain that the chief priest could only enter one time a year to make sacrifices for the people. And on that theme of sacrifice, 
Sacrifices were given over and over again because that was the center of what it meant to be worshipped, uh, to, to worship God. They were reminded over and over again of the cost of their sin that separated them from God because God is holy. He can't allow sin in his presence, but he made, he made a, a way for them to relate to him by offering these sacrifices over and over again. And yet it left them wanting more. The blood of bulls and goats, like we know in the New Testament, can never take away our sins. And yet, that's all they had. They had this old covenant that was an imperfect reflection of what it meant for God to dwell with his people. Solomon himself ponders in 1 Kings 8, 27, as he thinks about this temple that he's built for God, he asks the question, but will God indeed dwell on earth? As I meditated on that passage, it just struck me. That was the question that they were waiting for the full fulfillment of the Messiah to answer. Would God really dwell on earth? And so imagine for a moment that you're a Jew and you're used to the sacrificial system and you're keenly aware of the separation between you and God. You, you have the presence of God in the temple, but it's not a full and complete presence. And then you come to the New Testament and you see God's answer to the fulfillment of all of that imagery. And you come to John chapter 1 and you hear these words. These powerful words that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that yes, we are separated from God in our sin, but God had a plan of redemption. And his plan of redemption was not us working harder for our own righteousness. And it wasn't offering the blood of bulls and goats over and over again in an imperfect reflection of what it meant for him to commune with his people. Instead, God moved towards us by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world, who lived a perfect life and then died a sin-atoning death once for all on the cross in our place so that anybody who repents from him and places their faith in him is not only forgiven for all their sins, but is brought into perfect perfect fellowship with God forever. And so then you see in 1 Peter 2, when he says that we're being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, what he's saying is, brothers and sisters, in Christ, there isn't a physical temple that we have to go to anymore to worship him. You are the temple. We don't have to go to one place where God has chosen to manifest his presence. God manifests his presence everywhere that his people, who he indwells with the power of the Holy Spirit, are gathered. That's the imagery that Peter's getting at here and trying to encourage the people with. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of their identity. He's the cornerstone. If you build your life on Christ, like he says later in 1 Peter 2, 6, if you believe in him, you won't be put to shame because God looks on him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the gospel. Peter reminds them of the gospel. And it's in that context that he then gives in 1 Peter 2, 9, the passage that we're going to look at today in that context that he takes some of more of those Old Testament, Old Covenant images and he applies them to the church. And in doing so, over and over again, he's not only reminding the church of their new identity in Christ, but he elevates and exalts the perfections of Jesus. 
And so what do we mean by that? We'll take a look at the first descriptor. There's five descriptors here if you want to jot them down, but we'll go through them again. He says you're a chosen race. That's number one. A royal priesthood. That's number two. A holy nation. And then a people for his own possession. That's number four. And then number five, I'm cheating a little bit. It's found at the end of verse 10. We are objects of God's mercy. So let's start with chosen race. When Peter says you are a chosen race, why does he give that descriptor of our identity to the church? And how does that strengthen us as we live for Christ's glory in the world? Well, I think what Peter's getting at here is he reminds them that just like Israel, the church is not something that we made or designed. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the people of God is something that God has made. It's completely by his initiative. You know, this takes us back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, doesn't you remember from uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12 when Abram is called, and he gives that great promise God does to Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing, and in all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. Now, if you're just reading that verse out of context, you may be tempted to think, well, Abraham must have been a pretty special guy. I mean, for God to choose him of everybody on earth... It must have been that he was like a pretty cool dude, close to God. Brothers and sisters, what's amazing is that God chose Abram when he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan idolater like the rest of the world. There was nothing special about Abram. God chose to make a nation for himself, to give the manifestation of his presence, to give the law, to reveal his plan of redemption. Yes, he did do that. He did have that special calling. But Peter reminds us that the nation of Israel wasn't anything special. What made them who they were was God's initiative and God's plan. And he's, he's applying that truth to the church and saying the same thing is true of us. If you look back at verse 8, Right before the passage we are studying today, it says they stumble because they disobey the word. That's referring to non-believers. And then he says, in contrast to those who stumble over this stone, Christ, those who didn't build their lives on him but instead stumbled over it through unbelief, he says that the difference between them and us is not anything that we've done, not any merit we bring to the table. No, the, the amazing truth is it's only God's election. It's his choosing. That's what Peter's trying to encourage them with. And so why does he do this, do you think? Why does he take a moment right here to choose as the first descriptor that we are a chosen nation, not a nation of our own design, with our own effort, by our own strength, but rather of his initiative? It's because I think God desires to humble us. You see, brothers and sisters, if we didn't make it happen, we can't take the credit for it. If we didn't make it happen, the only thing we can do is to point to God and give him the praise and the glory for our salvation. But I think also it assures us in our faith, doesn't it? I mean, think about the context that Peter's writing to. His, 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 his audience is struggling. They're facing persecution. They're facing threats from the world like we alluded to earlier. Doesn't it give us hope and strength to also know that our foundation for what we're believing, our foundation for what we're doing in the world, that the reason we exist is not by our design, but by his. You see, brothers and sisters, Peter knows that the assurance of the reality that this is God's plan helps us to know that we are on safe and solid ground. 
But then also, very quickly, I think this truth serves to unify us as a people as well. I'm mindful of places like Ephesians 2, where Paul uh, is very aware of the division between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Even back then, disunity threatened the efficacy of the church in the world. And there, very powerfully, after proclaiming the gospel to them, in Ephesians 2, chapters 1 through, I mean, verses 1 through 12, he goes on to say that we are united because in Christ he has created one new man in place of the old. Peter says that we are chosen. Yes, it's all by God's initiative, but we are a new kind of race. The things that seek to divide us, our skin color, anything else that we would place our identity in, he says that those things are not what identifies and what unifies the body of Christ. What identifies and unifies the body of Christ is the fact that we have been chosen and have been made a new race in Christ. And so we are a chosen race. But then he goes on to say we're a royal priesthood. What does this mean? Well, this is actually a direct reference to num- uh, excuse me, uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. In Exodus 19, you may remember, God is giving the law to the Israelites, Mount Sinai, and the law was the means by which the people of God would relate to God to reflect his holiness so that they could re- have communion with him, but then also to reflect it to the watching world. And what's fascinating is we're familiar with the role of priests, I think. In Israel, the priest's job was to mediate the covenant blessings of God to his people. They were the ones who officiated the sacrificial system, for example. They were the ones who led in corporate worship. They were the ones who the people of God looked to, to to see what God would have them do and to guide them in what it meant to live in response. That's what the priests did. But powerfully in uh, in Exodus 19, God himself says that the nation of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And by that, he's taking that theme of the priestly office and applies it to the whole nation. He says that in the same way that the priest ministers sacrifices and the covenant blessings of God to God's people, the nation of Israel was supposed to, through obedience to the law and through relationship with God, reflect the blessings of God to the world. They were supposed to be the mediators of God's blessing to all the earth, not just to themselves. Solomon, incidentally, prays this very thing at the end of his benedictory prayer at the temple where he says, God, we pray that your temple would draw people from among the nations, that they would see your glory, and that they would know who you are. And so why does Peter take this theme of this Old Testament priesthood and apply it to us? He's underscoring that in Christ, we have also been made priests. Jesus, of course, is our great high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice. And guess what? In him, do you know what we now have? We have access to the kingly throne of God. So Peter says it's part of our identity now that we have become true worshipers worshipers of God. And unlike the priests of old that had to make repeated sacrifices for others and then for themselves, we can look to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ and then from that blessing mediate God's blessing to others. This is the fulfillment that Paul, I think, is alluding to in Romans 12 when he says, I appeal to you, brother, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The body of Christ has access to the throne of grace. We have the ability now to take God's blessings and apply them to each other through serving one another, through praying for one another, 
and by mediating God's blessings to the world through the proclamation of the gospel. More on that in a moment. So we are a chosen race. We've been given the priestly identity of worshiping God and communicating his worship to the world, but we're also a holy nation. This is also found in Exodus 19. Peter uses the word a holy ethnos, a holy ethnicity. When you think about an ethnicity, what usually comes to your mind? When you think about an ethnicity, you usually think of defining characteristics, right? You think of any ethnicity in the world and your mind immediately comes up with adjectives. Adjectives to describe them if someone were to ask you. Here, Peter is saying that in Christ, we have been made a holy nation and we have been made a new ethnicity and the chief marker of what's supposed to be true about us is the marker of holiness. What is holiness? Well, in the Old Testament, this theme is very well developed. Holiness means to be set apart. And in the context of the temple, it meant to be sanctified, called out for a unique purpose, useful to God. And it also, of course, refers to the setting apartness of God himself in all of his perfections and his purity. You see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. Again, they were supposed to keep God's law, and they were supposed to, by keeping the law, have that relationship with God and mediate it to the world. But the problem was the law was always external to them. Everything was external to the heart. So when Peter takes this theme, he's actually saying, we as a church have been made a holy nation, and it's not because, again, of any rote adherence to practices or ordinances. It's because God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has taken the law and has written it on our hearts, and our standing is now in him who has obeyed the law perfectly so that we can walk in him. So our chief marker as the people of Christ is that we are holy. And I think this aspect of holiness is helpful in a couple of ways to strengthen us in our faithfulness. As Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 4, the fact that we're holy in Christ, the fact that we're called to live for him, set apart in purity, it shows that we're not like the world anymore and it helps us to understand why we're persecuted. In 1 Peter uh, 4, you don't have to flip there, but I'll summarize it for you. He actually encourages the people to keep living in holiness and to stand against the attacks of falling back into their old ways of unholiness because the people around them were confused as to why they were living the way they were. And I think this is true for us in our day, is it not? Is the world not confused as to why we cling to the Word of God as the standard? Are they not confused when we no longer join with them as Peter says, in the flood of debauchery that used to mark our lives, we're persecuted in obedience to Christ because our obedience communicates the cost of sin. It communicates that people who are on the outside are not able to relate with him. And so it makes sense that people will get angered whenever we put away our old selves and whenever we walk in him. So it gives us a framework for understanding why we're being persecuted. And ironically, that means we can delight in our persecutions. As Jesus said, blessed are those who persecute and revile you. Why is it blessed? Because that means that we belong to him. But also, positively for our lives, it helps us in our fight with sin. First Peter 1, earlier in verses 14 through 16, says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Don't you see, brothers and sisters, how this helps us whenever we are confronted with sin? Whenever we're confronted with sin, the answer is not just trying to drum up again some sort of strength in ourselves. Instead, we need to be reminded by God's grace that in the gospel, we are holy. We are holy. In Christ, when God looks at us, he no longer sees a wretched sinner clothed in unrighteous rags. Instead, he sees the robe of righteousness that was imputed to us by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And so when Satan comes at you with the sin, and even when you stumble into sin, how do we stand against that attack? We tell him, that's not my nature anymore. I am no longer one who is following Satan and the world. I'm his. And as a result, I am holy. So it helps us to refute the devil's lies. Holiness is our current state. That's how we can resist the accusations of the evil one. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We've been marked out as holy. Peter also says we're God's possession. Because of what God has done through the gospel, We now belong to him. We now are adopted as sons and daughters. Romans 8, 15, you have received the spirit of adoption to sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what that means, brothers and sisters, again, it's just a different nuance of everything we've already been talked about. Peter wants to remind us as the people of God that if we are his, do you think anything can take us from the hand of God? If it's really his initiative and it's really his grace and it's really his power and it's really his plan, then do you think we can really be plucked from his hand? No. We are safe and secure. Romans 8, 35 through 39, Paul proclaims this theme powerfully. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Later on, he says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. I remember when my children were born at the hospital. You, uh, brothers, sisters, who've given birth at a hospital, you may remember, as soon as the baby's born, what do they do? Well, they clean them off and they, they make them look pretty for the pictures and all of that, and I'm grateful for that. It was, no offense, children, you were kind of disgusting when you came out. But the next thing they do after that is, at least at Duke, they take this little tag with a QR code on it and wrap it around the baby's ankle. And I remember thinking about that, like the doctors literally just saw this baby, for lack of better words, come from my wife, all right? They saw my wife and me in the room, and they know that it belongs to me. But what I realized was that that tag was not for me and Laura. That tag was for everyone else to know that we belonged, that the children belonged to us. And of course, there's safeguards wrapped up in that. It was also a means of protection, right? So that someone couldn't just walk out with our baby because at the door, they're going to scan that QR code. They're going to try to match it to the one on my wrist or on your wrist if you're trying to steal my baby. Don't do that. And they're going to say, that's not yours. In the same way, God, through the gospel, has made us his possession. 
through the gift of the Holy Spirit, God through the indwelling Spirit seals us for our inheritance in Him. The Holy Spirit is the newer and better QR code. And He's the scanner. And He's the software that supports it. He's everything. And so if you're in Christ, Peter wants to remind you that you are His possession and nothing can take you from His hand. You have been sealed. And all of this, very powerfully, is because of this next marker or objects of His mercy. You know what's powerful here is in the original language, the word for mercy there is not a noun. Received mercy is how we see it in the English. There it's functioning as a noun. In the original language, the word mercy there is a verb. Peter's basically saying that all of this is from Christ. All of this is to Christ. All of this is, is for your good and for his glory. And again, it's not because of anything in you. It's not because of your strength. It's not because of your power. It's all because of his mercy. You, as the people of God, are mercied. You have been mercified. We are objects of God's mercy. And I think it makes plain sense how this would bless us in our walks with Christ, doesn't it? Our attacks against, aren't attacks against our identity not merely attacks against the mercy of Christ that we've received? Aren't the lies of the devil and the temptations to fall away from him and, and, and the temptations to be weak in our faith, aren't all of those things really at the root a questioning of whether or not we actually belong to him? Brothers and sisters, what's true about you this morning, if you're in Christ, is that you are loved by God. You're loved by Him. You're the object of His mercy right now. The power for living the Christian life is realizing that nothing can separate us because it's not anything that we do that can take away the love of God for us because it's God's love initiated towards us that we just receive. Well, you've been adopted because of his love. You've been brought into a family. This gives us hope when we struggle, doesn't it? Whenever we face a trial or whenever we struggle in maybe our own sins, we can be reminded of the truth that while our sins are many, his mercy is more. Don't let the devil tempt you to cheapen God's mercy and his grace by convincing you that your sin is too great for him to forgive. Because Peter says that just like the nation of Israel was an object of his mercy, the people of God are only that because of his mercy. And so in summary, in the face of spiritual danger that would threaten our faithfulness to Christ, Peter points them to their identity in Jesus. They're a chosen race, which means we're elected by God and born by his power. They're a royal priesthood. God's made us worshipers of him and mediators of all of his blessings. We're a holy nation. We've been transformed. We're walking in a new nature because we no longer are the old self. We are the new self in Christ. And whenever we stumble and fall in walking in that holiness, we're reminded that we're his possession, adopted by God, his forever, and that nothing can take us from his hand. And then in all of it, everything is because of his mercy and his love for us through faith by grace alone. Our identity in Christ is our sure foundation. That's why Jesus is the rock on which you can build your life. That first point was the longest for a reason. Don't worry, the next two will be shorter. The reason why this first point is so important for us is because, again, at every step of what it means to be faithful in the Christian life, we have to be reminded of what our identity is. That's what's going to center us 
And that's what's going to focus us. And so our identity in Christ is the foundation. But what about our direction? We answered the question of who we are, but that identity question has the other component of where are we going? For what purpose do we exist? So what is our God-glorifying purpose? If you look back at verse 9, Peter gives all of these identifying markers, and then it comes to a very important word, that wonderful little word there, that. That's a purpose statement. The word that indicates that all of this stuff that we were just talking about that God has done, it's not merely for us to just be enjoyed or to be thought about. Instead, Peter tells us that whenever God has made this our identity, he says that we now have a purpose in that identity. And what is that purpose? It's so that we can fulfill what we were created to do. It's so that we can now glorify God. Look again at what he says. It's very easy to see in the text. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you may proclaim the what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The word there in the original language means literally to to declare his praiseworthy deeds. It it means to, to take everything about who God is and everything about what he's done and everything that he is doing and making it known, not just to each other, but to everyone in the world. And why does Peter say this is our purpose? Well, you have to go with me on this because this logic, if you can see it in God's word, is awesome, okay? Why do you think the purpose of God is that we would glorify him? Well, we have to get with the program of what God is doing in the world. Remember that God's chief aim is to glorify himself. He wants the radiant display of his attributes, his character, and his nature to be known throughout the whole world like the waters cover the seas, like we see on the verse that's written on the map outside from Habakkuk. So if God's chief aim is to glorify himself, that means his power And his purposes and his plans are all set on that aim of bringing glory to himself, right? And so that means if we want to be in the center of God's power for living a faithful life in Christ Jesus, where do we need to be? We need to be in the stream of making God's glory known. We need to be where he is. If God's plan and purposes is focused on his glory being made known, then the more that we involve ourselves in that purpose and plan, the more strength and power we derive for the Christian life. Amen? And so what's powerful about what Peter's saying here is the truth that he knows that he's trying to communicate to his churches. Strength in the Christian life is not merely found in knowing God, though it is found in that. Strength in the Christian life is found in the joy that comes from making him known. And why is this? Because brothers and sisters, remember, this is what we were made to do. We were created to have, wor- to have a heart of worship, to fellowship with God, and to praise him for all of eternity. And so the fuel of faithfulness in our life is living for this God-glorifying purpose by proclaiming his excellencies to everyone around us. And so this helps us in many ways very quickly I'm only going to give you three, but one of them is it helps us to evaluate perhaps why we lack joy in the Christian life. If joy comes through proclaiming God's excellencies, could it be that the lack of joy in our life is because we're not remembering the praiseworthy deeds of God and giving credit to Him who deserves all praise? He's infinitely worthy of praise. There's no end to the amount of things we can say about Him that are good and pleasing to Him. And if we are pre 
pleasing him. That's a river of joy. It's the fount of blessing from God. And so be encouraged that perhaps the lack of joy could be because we're focusing too much on ourselves. We're not focusing on the glories of God. But secondly, if you're struggling with sin, this joy of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ gives us an expulsive power to get rid of every lesser joy. I'm convinced that the way our strength is faith, uh, uh, faith is strengthened is through being indwelt more and more with the joy that comes from walking in fellowship with God. And the more we're mindful of who He is and what He's doing in the world and participating in that, the more power we have to put to death sin. And so, practically, number three, we also need to share the gospel. Don't believe the lies of the devil that sharing the gospel wherever you're at is not worth it. It's so funny. This past week, we had the joy of going out as teams to do the Go Teams, which is going out in the different communities and into the city to share the gospel with people. And I'll confess to you, I mentioned this in a previous sermon. When I go out to to do these things, oftentimes I'm met with fear and I'm met with worry as well. But I tell you what, when we got back and we were sharing as brothers and sisters, the joy that we had when we were sharing the gospel, when we were engaging with people, I realized that the truth of what Peter is saying here is true. True joy is found in, in, in walking in what God has commanded us to do. And so don't be afraid to share the gospel. Don't let the devil convince you that you're going to be less happy for proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. You won't. You'll be more happy for proclaiming his excellencies. So let that strengthen you as you consider your own task of taking the gospel to those who do not know it. The foundation of our faithfulness is God-given identity. The fuel of our faithfulness is the joy that we have in fulfilling our God-glorifying purpose. And then the final way that Peter strengthens his church for faithfulness is by showing the effect that our identity and our purpose have on our lives. He reminds them that this new identity and this new purpose has to play itself out. And so he summarizes what it means to have this purpose and this identity by reminding them as well of their God-focused calling in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, very quickly. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when Peter uses these words of sojourners, exiles, when he fixes their eyes on judgment day, which is that day of visitation he's referring to, what Peter's reminding them is that this new identity in Christ and this new purpose in Christ, it has an effect on our lives, or at least it should. And the effect that it should have is that it realigns our priorities and it refocuses our perspective. The word sojourners and exiles is picked up as a theme in the book of Hebrews. Whenever in the hall of faith, you may remember, each of the saints who lived godly lives for Christ Jesus, it's said about them that they were living as exiles and as strangers and as aliens because they were longing for a better city and they were longing for a homeland that was not this earth. So Peter's exhorting us here. He says, if you look at your life and you're still living like the world, It may be that you haven't fully grasped your identity and your purpose in Christ. Because our identity and our purpose should cause us to not reflect the things of the world anymore, but to to use our resources, to use our gifts, to use our abilities in such a way that it shows that we are His 
and that we are called to Him. The knowledge that heaven is our reward gives us strength to persevere. And so he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And why? Because the passions of the flesh are against our nature and all they do is drag our eyes back down to earth where our home is not. He tells them to conduct themselves among the Gentiles honorably. And by that he means when they revile you, when they persecute you, when they speak ill against you, don't give in to anger and bitterness towards them, but just keep living a righteous life in Christ because ultimately he will vindicate you when Christ returns in his glory. And it may be that through your righteous living that you can also proclaim the gospel to them so that they can have God called their God and be brought into the family too. And so by way of closing, we're reminded by Peter that strength for faithfulness comes by embracing our God-given identity. It comes through fulfilling our God-given purpose, and it comes through stepping into our God-given calling. And so if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, I want to urge you, based off of the promises of the gospel, to find your identity in Him. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Come to him. He's the living stone. He's the sure foundation on which you can fill your life. Through repentance of your sin and faith in him, you can start your pilgrim journey and you can be grafted in to his family, built up into his holy temple, adopted as a son or a daughter, and be brought into the central reality of the universe, which is God's glory on display forever and ever. So come to him. What's holding you back? In the light of this beautiful picture, what in this world is stopping you from placing your faith in him? Don't fall into making an identity for yourself. It will fail because judgment day is coming. Flee to Christ and build your rock, your house on him. But for us as believers, we've been sprinkling application through I want you just to meditate on the reality of what it means to be the people of God. Again, as we think about church planting, as we think about evangelism, the question of what does it mean to be faithful, I'm sure, rises to the top of our minds. I want to encourage you that faithfulness doesn't mean merely going with the church plant or not. It doesn't mean staying here or going for any or any manner of particular path. Faithfulness is found in remembering who we are in Christ and walking in obedience to his commands. So may the joy of the Lord be your strength as you seek after him, and may he be pleased to make his blessings known in and through us as we mediate his blessings to the watching world. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and how you don't leave us without instructions for how we ought to live our lives for your glory. Lord, we confess to you that over and over again we are met with our weakness over and over again, we're tempted to take our eyes off Christ. So Lord, we thank you for Peter's words here, how he takes all of these rich blessings, all of these rich truths that were in part true about Israel, and then he tells us how they're truer in a much more full sense and a much more glorifying sense in Christ. We thank you, Lord, how that's going to serve as the, the focus and as the aim of everything that we do as we live our lives for you. Help us, Lord, to evaluate our lives through these lenses. Help us, Lord, to confess sin quickly, knowing that sin is not 
our true nature anymore because we are in you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim your excellencies, knowing that as we participate in the spread of your glory to our neighbors and to the nations, that that's where true joy is found. Lord, we want to see your power at work. Lord, we as a church, we desperately want to see lives transformed. We want to see this baptismal behind me filled. We want to see people who are crossing over from death to life. And we know that it's only going to happen by your spirit. So please bring a sense of your spirit to us. Overfill us, Lord, with joy in Christ such that we would be that so filled that the glory of Christ would just pour out of us and that your glory would continue from us forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.